Steve. Hey Rick, how are you? Yeah, not so bad, thank you. Yeah, it's the first time I've ever used the um, uh, messenger to do uh, a video call. Yeah, it's funny. The um, weirdly, having worked in radio for such a long time, you wouldn't have thought, but the quality over the interweb. It sounds. You sound very good. I don't know what I sound. I probably sound like me, which is never a good thing. But, <laughs> uh, Welcome to 40k Game Changers. My name's Steve Joel. I'm a radio host. A job that helps pay for the addiction I've developed to Warhammer 40,000. I don't know if you've if you very often had calls from New Zealand, uh, Australia sometimes, right? But sometimes. Uh, that's as, that's as close as that's as, and, and they're not that close, are they? <laughs> In this series of podcasts, we get to know the people who've changed the way we Warhammer. From playing to painting to collecting and reading the stories, I want you to meet the Game Changers. In the series, uh, it's called Game Changers. And the idea is that I, I will kind of have a, a decent long get-to-know-your chat with people who influence the game of 40K. And I know it's not exactly what you created, but... Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. This week... The man who gave birth to what has become a monster. This episode is brought to you by the Frontline Gaming Network's community group on Facebook. Did you even know that was a thing? Jump into the Frontline community on Facebook and be part of some great conversations. Right now, the team would love your opinion on the team size for team tournaments. The link to the Frontline community is in our show notes. Now, who's ready? to meet our maker. My guest today has so influenced 40K that in a show called Game Changes, there would be no game without him. He wrote the very first 40K rule and law book called Rogue Trader, and he literally created the game of 40K. Andy Chambers once called him the original emperor of the 41st millennium, Rick Priestley. Thank you so much for being on the program today. How are you, sir? I'm great, Steve. How are you? I, uh, I'm conscious that you're in the UK and I'm on the other side of the world. And I know that as we record, the UK is, is doing it a little bit tough. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of people I speak to over there who are not doing so well. Yeah, we're, we're in lockdown, so uh, we don't get to do very much. No. Uh, you know, we're, all, we're, all, we're all sat at home, which does at least mean you've got plenty of time to paint toy soldiers. <laughs> you've got plenty of time to paint toy soldiers or write stories, if that's something you're still interested in doing or, or whatever it might be. It's, although yeah. it's funny, a lot of the 40K people I know uh, going into lockdown said, great, this will be my opportunity to paint toy soldiers and have done a total of very little painting during that yeah. time. Um. Now, uh, let me start with this, and and this question encapsulates the whole time from the sort of late 70s, early 80s on to now. If you're at the pub having a beer and you meet someone new and they say, what do you do for a job, what's your answer to that question? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, like, you know, I don't know. When people used to ask us what we did for a living, you know, we'd, we'd all shuffle our feet nervously yeah. and explain that we worked at a toy soldier factory. <laughs> Well, that's it. The reason I ask is because it's hard enough to explain playing the game to people as a proper grown-up with a proper job. You know, people oh. ask me about my hobby. It's hard enough explaining it that I play it, let alone that I work there or create it or write the no, rule books. No, Steve, these days, it's easy. Gaming's cool. When we were kids, 
you got beaten up for doing this sort of thing. <laughs> well, look, and I'm uh, not quite a, a, as old as you. I'm only short by a few years, though, and I remember going through the 80s when Dungeons & Dragons became very popular, but only with a certain set. And there was all the yeah. other set that, yes, as you say, would just as quickly flush your head down the toilet if you were one of the nerds playing the game. Yeah, um, yeah, it absolutely was like that. And I can remember um, uh, going out to uh, to the pub, and uh, if, if girlfriends were present, it was an unspoken rule that you never talked about the game you'd just played or the toy <laughs> soldier. You, know, you were not allowed to. It was just the uncoolest thing. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. What, what I, I uh, find remarkable, actually, doing the, the looking through all of the... Um, information about you know doing my research 40k when you created 40k you were 28 which i think of as as young i'm i'm amazed that you were able to do that but actually you go back further when you created reaper you must have been around 18 years old and then you had that rule set published that's extraordinary isn't it looking back aren't you yeah. amazed that at the age you started doing this stuff yeah actually me and richard halliwell who's who co-wrote both reaper and um, warhammer uh, we were writing our own rules and dreaming of publishing when we were, you know, mid-teenage, teenagers, young teenagers, really. Yeah. Uh, started, we started playing war, war games um, when we were, what, 12, 13, that sort of age. Um, yeah. And then 18 yeah, years yeah. old, you get their pub. You went on to study archaeology at, at uh, what we call university, is that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Lancaster University. Uh, I, I went to study archaeology, and one of the one of the reasons why, I actually didn't go to study archaeology. I went to study classics and ancient history originally, but I, I changed my degree to archaeology, um, and it was really as wargaming that really got me interested in ancient history, and um, yeah, ancient cultures and, and, and that sort of thing. Because I was I was really interested in ancient wargaming, right. and then Tolkien, and then Tolkien, of course, you know, Lord of the Rings came along and that. Uh, took over. Uh, so really, in many ways, it was it was the war gaming that got me interested in the in the ancient history, and then the archaeology is an aspect of that. And then when I came back to write stuff for Games Workshop, I brought a lot of what I'd learned uh, in my archaeology degree um, uh, in, into into what I did for a living. Um, there's there's quite a lot of uh, you know, it, there's quite a lot of ancient cultural and historical references all throughout. Yeah. And also, you know how historical societies kind of work. You know how ancient religion, uh, ancient religions. I know it sounds unlikely, but uh, I did a course in uh, in uh, uh, Greek religion, and um, you, you get a sense of what people are capable of believing and what they how they think about uh, the supernatural that you don't really just get just thinking about it cold. You know, there's quite a lot of subtlety to it, really. And there is. You can see uh, now, and uh, obviously this was the intent, you really can see uh, that the different, say, chapters of Space Marines or different alien races, they, they, there is so much of ancient civilizations in different parts of the world, Egypt and Rome and Greece, wound into these stories. And that's obviously been, as I say, your intent right from the beginning. Uh, yeah, well, I think I plundered what I knew right from the beginning and yeah. exploited it. Um, you, you know, it wasn't, and sometimes, you know, we had to do these things really quick. I mean, yeah, we didn't have months and months to write anything. And sometimes a model would land on my desk and it had, and, and, and the chap would put it there and say, oh, White Dwarf's going to press at five o'clock. We need the rules for this. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. It's two o'clock. People, yeah. I think people imagine you sitting down for months as a writer with a no. you know a pen at your lips and uh, no. pondering. Bash, 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 bash. <laughs> Type fast. Yeah. Type fast. Die young. Yeah. Right, right. Well, let's actually, can we go back just, uh, you know, so we've kind of fast forwarded a little bit to models being placed on your desk and rules being demanded. Let's let's go back slightly before that to the heady days of the sort of the mid eighties, and you know people have to remember that back then no internet, and no social media, and Rick Astley was popular, and the Jam was probably playing on your tape deck. Yeah, um, not 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 in not in Citadel HQ. It was all Hawkwind, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So uh, let's go back to those those days and you getting into. Games Workshop. It it was not then what we know it is now. It was a much smaller operation. Can you tell us about that? Uh, in the eighties, yeah. I mean, when I first joined, which was nineteen eighty two, it really was. We used two companies. Games Workshop was an import business that had about six shops that basically sold American role playing games, mostly D and D, and uh, published White Dwarf, which was a kind of games review magazine, and. Um, Citadel Miniatures just made models, primarily models for D&D, for role players. Um, and there wasn't any real wargaming going on in this sort of battles, same sense of battles. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we, we very quickly grew that. It's Brian Ansell at Citadel Miniatures who had the ambition to, he had the ambition to grow that company. Um, so the Citadel part grew quite quickly. And by the mid-1980s, we had moved into a, a new factory, uh, which was really, recently, we thought it was enormous, and considering the Victorian hellhole that we worked in to start with, <laughs> I mean, it really was. I mean, when the, when the weather uh, got bad, it rained, and, and the rain came through the roof, and the uh, the water dripped into the uh, the pots of molten metal, that could get quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, by, by the mid-80s, we'd moved into our Eastwood factory, this was a factory built in a ex mining town just north of Nottingham, uh, so it was a bit rough. This was in the days when the mines were all closing, and um, there was quite a lot of industrial unrest. Uh, in fact, some of our staff used to get uh, uh, pulled over by the police uh, because of all the all the picketings going on in, and the industrial rioting. Wow! Yeah, that was quite exciting. Yeah. The original studio there was just a, a small office. There was about, what, maybe four or five of us by then. Uh, you know, and I did a lot uh, a lot of everything. Well, the thing about growing up doing, kind of starting at the bottom of all these things, and bear in mind I started putting toy soldiers in boxes for a living, um, you know, and then I ran the mail order, and the mail order involves doing catalogues, and catalogues involves publishing, and publishing involves doing the Warhammer rules and and so on. So um, the advantage of doing everything that way means that I had a pretty good idea of all the processes, all the stages in all the processes. Yeah. Know, I wasn't just the boss. Uh, and later on, you know, I was running the studio, but I'd done most of the jobs that everyone was doing. But by the mid-80s, we really were, uh, I think we were turning over about 10 million, but there was still a sense in which the big thing was role-playing, you know. Right. And if not role-playing, then it was putting together all these games for, um, uh, I was going to say Woolworths, I don't know if it means anything these days, for the high, what we call the high street. There's lots of high street stores, including W.A. Smith's and Woolworths, places like this in, in at the time. They were quite big retail outlets. And 
we made games specifically for these retail outlets. Space Fleet, that was one. Mm. They were all designed originally not to sell in games workshop stores, but to sell in these high street stores. So, you know, we were doing a lot of things. We were doing board games, we had a license for 2000 AD, we had a license for D&D. Um, we were producing RuneQuest and other Chaosium products, all under license. So there's a lot going on. It wasn't all just Warhammer. Yeah, um, well, Warhammer yeah. only kind of came, I wouldn't want to say later, but, but Brian wanted you to create a game to sell the models. He's Citadel. So what I want yeah. people to understand, again, is that these are two separate entities here. Games Workshop were, and Citadel are two separate things working together. Brian bought out the other two, uh, right. Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. So uh, he, he amalgamated Games Workshop and uh, uh, Citadel and called it Games Workshop. Now, the reason he didn't call it Citadel was because we already about we had about ten shops, and they all had signs, and signs are quite expensive on shops, <laughs> and they all said games workshop. <laughs> yeah, that's a very practical decision. So, <laughs> yes. so but I see now uh, uh, our mutual friend Paul Cob Coburn and I were talking about this because he was working there around eighty four eighty five, when Citadel bought Games Workshop. That's a key moment in that Citadel was making models, and that's when it became okay. The job now becomes selling models so we're going to create games to sell the models is that fair to say yeah although we did continue doing board games and other stuff for quite a long role-playing games for quite a long time yeah but um, brian was very much models oriented actually had all the role-playing games made oodles of money i'm sure he would have come he would have become role-playing oriented very quickly i mean you know <laughs> brian I don't know, he was he's quite pragmatic like that brian right 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 there are there uh, are some yeah. there are some elements of the story of again before we get into the 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 moment of creation of warhammer Forty Thousand. Uh, i love the idea of the perry twins making models in their in their parents house essentially for you know in the early days uh, we have no sculptors on site uh, for for quite a long time, not until the studio was refounded in the um, oh, can't try it. it would have been eighty five, eighty six, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And I also love the idea that almost none of this would have happened if your mum didn't have a typewriter with a legal carriage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my my mum was a shorthand typist, and we had a typewriter at home. So uh, I uh, I actually. Yeah, I, 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 when Richard Halliwell and I were doing rules of our own, you know, just kids really, I could type up the rules. Yeah. Um, and because um, I couldn't type properly and still can't to this day, but you know, two fingers, journalist style. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because the other thing to remember is in, 19, in 1980 or 1970s, uh, on the whole, men couldn't type. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just not a thing blokes did. And nowadays, everyone uses a keyboard, don't they? Yeah. Well, that wasn't the case. Absolutely wasn't the case. And a lot of my contemporaries never really got to grips with the keyboard, even at, even even now. You should you should see John Stellard with a keyboard. It's like a cat walked across it. Shocking. And the story I'm referring to for people who are listening is is uh, when you and Richard and Brian were all getting together and, and the rules for this game were being created. Uh, you got the job of typing it up on A3 paper and then it was reduced down to A4, which is the way the printing process worked. But you got to type uh, it up because of your mum's typewriter. Have I got that right well, or is that around the wrong way? Uh, you're thinking of Reaper. That was how Reaper was done. Oh, okay. I've got it. Yeah. That was how Reaper was done when I was 18. Right. By the time we did uh, uh, Warhammer, what 
what happened was Brian in, got Stephen in to invest in a Rank Xerox 860 word processor. Um, uh, that, if you care to look it up on the internet, it's an interesting bit of kit. It's about the size of a fridge, and um, it, it operates off um, floppy disks. You might have to look that one up as well. Uh, and basically, you you could load up a f floppy disk in the morning. It went chuck 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 chuck. And uh, eventually, a uh, little green light flashes up, and then you put another disc in, and you could get about you know, half a book, maybe, in the, I say half a book, half of one of those skinny books that we did, about 40, 50 pages, onto a floppy disk. Yeah. Um, and, and from that, you could print out, uh, you'd have a, a daisy wheel printer, which sounded like a machine gun going off in the office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's how we did Warhammer, and we did that. Uh, we use that for um, pretty much everything. Okay, let's get to uh, let's get to the proper stuff that a lot of our audience is here for, which is the creation of Warhammer Forty Thousand. Um, it's hard to imagine for for those of us playing the game now, tabletop games before Warhammer. Um, but when Warhammer Fantasy came along, and that was obviously that that was doing okay. You guys created this 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 Warhammer game, which was. You know, more fantasy oriented, and that was doing all right with the punters. Yeah, absolutely. No, it did, took off. It did very well. Um, I think uh, we were we did three editions up to nineteen eighty seven. I think, um, and yeah, no, it became the it really became the breadwinner for Games Workshop. Although before uh, Brian bought the company, I don't think anyone had quite admitted it to him. Um, but really, we were selling more fantasy models on the back of Warhammer than pretty much anything else. It was it was the main business, really. Yeah, and so a lot of businesses in that situation would have done spin-off games of that, smaller games like your Blood Bowls and those sorts of things. But um, but you guys decided let's create another giant game, <laughs> you know, which is well, Warhammer Forty Thousand. Warhammer Forty. Well, no one knew it was good. No one knew it was going to be a giant game. No, <laughs> right. So well, so well, how did it come about? When I, when I joined Games Workshop, I, I didn't really... Brian kept phoning me up and asking me if, if I'd join Games Workshop because he wanted me to go in and sort out the mail order and then essentially start the publishing. But I was already working freelance. And I, I had ambitions to publish my, my own stuff. So I'd already written a game called Rogue Trader. Rogue Trader went with a model range I'd designed of spaceships. Rogue Trader was a spaceship... Uh, uh, battle and trading game. Um, when I joined Games Workshop, I, I said part of the deal, if you like, was I said, well, I'd really like to do Rogue Trader one day. And Brian said, well, yeah, we could publish this one day when we get going, but we do have to do Warhammer first. We'd like to do Fantasy first. So I said, all right, but I really would like to do it one day. And it became a bit of a standing joke. Um, but in one of the very early compendiums that we did, uh, must have been 83, 84, there's actually an advert for that game, Rogue Trader, and there's a drawing of a spaceship and a little bit of blurb. And because it was in that very early compendium, every time we did an event, a Games Day or a Dragon Meet or Open Day, all these youngsters would come up to me and say, when's Rogue Trader coming out? I wrote too good a bit of blurb, that's the trouble. It was a good yeah. blurb, yeah. and they were key. So when's Rogue Trader were coming out became a sort of a you see an anvil around my tied around my neck really in many ways. Yeah. Um, but I did want to actually do it. Unfortunately, what happened really was that Warhammer became so successful that um, it kind of went on the back burner. But we'd already started doing fantasy elements 
for uh, for Warhammer, and these have been published in the various compendiums. So the idea of doing a fantasy science fiction crossover game was all there from the start. In fact, Warhammer originally had lots of crossover stuff. I mean, the, the Amazons and Slime and, uh, and things like that. It, you know, it, it already had that, had that element, um, which stems from a lot of 1970s sci-fi. Uh, a lot of it's inspired by Michael Moorcock's uh, take on fantasy and by the other writers of that cadre, including Philip Jose Farmer and many others. Um, so, uh, we'd already been playing a bit of fantasy science fiction crossover, and I think I think I just started uh, on the basis that wouldn't it be great to just write this, this science fiction version of Warhammer, which became Road Trader in our imaginations. You know, he said, "Well, that 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 that's going to be the Road Trader game," which still included the spaceship combat rules, incidentally. Right. Um, but as we played Road Trader, the the 28 millimeter tabletop space marines just it, it sort of took over. It became the story. And it, I say we played it. What I really mean is, in our own time, because none of us got paid to design games in work's time. Heaven forbid. Really? Oh yeah, no way. You did that in your own time. Um, so in our own time, we were, because we were gamers and enthusiasts, we started getting quite into this, and actually it took off, it became quite an exciting thing. And I'd run games on, basically on our floor. Um, I, I shared a house with two other Games Workshop guys, and we'd invite friends around, and we'd play these big games of Road Trader, and they'd usually involve Space Marines appearing on some deserted world that had been, um, where an outpost had suddenly gone quiet, only to discover that everyone had been taken over by mind-eating zombies. You know, that kind of thing. It's semi-role-playing uh, narrative wargaming. Uh, and, and, and from that, I evolved the rule set. And one of the things Brian said, um, Brian Ansell, when he eventually said, OK, Rick, you can do Road Trader, the main reason he said it was because we'd already got lots of other games designers who'd suddenly come on board, mostly from um, uh, TSR. And so it, I wasn't really needed to do all the work on particularly the role-playing games. So Brian sort of kind of, he almost, he was almost a sop. It was, it was almost like, oh, for goodness sake, yes, all right, get it out of your system. <laughs> but if you're going to do Rogue Trader, you have to include all the fantasy races because nobody's going to buy science fiction models. Okay. So what we'll do is we'll release a whole pack of um, guns and special equipment and what have you, and people will be able to convert the fantasy figures into science fiction figures. Okay. Because, and Brian would look at me very sternly and go, nobody buys science fiction, you know. Right. See, I've read this as well in, in other interviews and things you've done. At that time, yeah. science fiction, even though... Uh, Star Wars had been big and, you know, other sci-fi things were coming along. There was this idea that science fiction didn't sell, so, you, so Brian Absolutely. didn't want to do it. It's because he'd already done science fiction in the form of a game called Laserburn. It, it wasn't commercially successful. And um, we'd already done a range called Spacefarers with Citadel, which was there when I joined, which hadn't really done anything. So I think Brian's feeling was that science fiction really was, was a bit of a lost, lost hope. 
Yeah. And there, there was nothing out there. There was no science fiction war games, really. So, so, so you know, there wasn't any great expectation. So, so when you say, you know, this is all the great game, War on 40,000, nobody thought that. Everyone right. thought this would be a... Let's shut. Let's just shut Rick up and get him to do the thing, and then we can get on with doing the role-playing games, the Chaosium stuff, and the, you know all that great Blood Bowl stuff. That, right. that, what, that, that's going to make us all our money. But so, it didn't quite work out like that. <laughs> so the one thing that I'm a little bit distracted by is you mentioned when you guys were playing, you were holding, uh, running games on the floor, and with your people, you were you know flatting with or living with. There was a space marine there. Where did, where did those early models of space marines come from? How did they get introduced? Were they made especially for Rogue Trader, or had they come from an earlier game somewhere? Uh, Bob Naismith, who was one of the guys that was doing was help was also a gamer and was playing games. He made the first. He made a space marine. Right. So um, right early on, very very early on, I was just converting figures and proxying, but. Um, very quickly, we made um, a Space Marine, an Orc, uh, a, a, an Eldar. I think that might have been it. You, you know, and these were these were quite quick jobs, yeah. just to give us something to. I think what it was is, after a while, you need some visual input, especially uh, in, in terms of you're going to be designing figures. I think the other thing was it, it quite quickly became apparent that this game was going to be, it, you know, it caught a bit of a, uh, a wave, and there were so many people coming around and playing that word was getting out. I mean, bear in mind these are all people who work for Games Workshop. Even though the company was based on two or three different sites by now, there was still a little bit of enthusiasm, a seed of enthusiasm that got planted in all in the factory as well as in the studio. So, so it kind of, it kind of caught a wave and to, and to some extent I was able to just get a few resources going. What do you think it was, given that there were other games that people had sort of started and hadn't caught on, what do you think it was about Rogue Trader, Warhammer 40,000 that that made it catch on? Is it the rules or the law or the combination of both or what? It's, it's everything. It, it's just a combination of all the things. Some of the models I created, particularly in the Rogue Trader book, and if you look at my um, my famous tank made out of a deodorant stick, <laughs> you look at that. You know, there's nothing gothic about it. There's nothing spiky about it. It's a sort of semi Jerry Anderson science fiction vehicle. Because in my mind, although I described a gothic universe, I I didn't intend that gothic quality to be literal. I was tr- it was a mindset. Yeah. But of course, when you're talking to artists. Artists are not very good at this sort of thing. <laughs> They're literal people. Sure. Make it gothic. Oh, you've drawn a gothic arch from a cathedral, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, do you know what? And it works. And the funny thing is, yeah. or interesting thing is, uh, I'm I'm in the middle of, and this is unbelievable that I haven't already done this, but I'm in the middle of reading the book Dune for the first time. Okay. But I, yeah, I, I do love that there's an element of the future, but also historical societal issues and also a little bit of steampunk and a little bit of this and that and all kind of thrown in and it just works it's and it's wonderful yeah it was kind of a melange isn't it it's um it's it definitely a medieval universe in space yeah um, the whole way I, I, yeah the, the way I, I kind of envisaged the uh, galaxy with the um uh, with warp space and everything what it does is it turns a galactic uh, space 
into something comparable to the real world in, in say the 16th century you can effectively sail from the new world to the old world yeah. but it takes a certain amount of time and getting a message there and a message back and so you call it, so you have governors in, in in colonies which might fail and so on and you you know you send ships off to explore but you don't know whether they're going to hit land or not you know is there really a great a great southern continent or not yeah or certainly not i'd say but you know, <laughs> well thank you so um <laughs> Right back then, like right back at the very beginning, you had concepts, and and I think I've read you say in interviews that they they weren't fully fleshed out. They were more conceptual elements to kind of uh, add flavour. But concepts like the warp and the emperor wasn't – you hadn't kind of necessarily figured out who this guy is, what he does, what his history is, but he's there as a conceptual kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know, when – if you look at the Rogue Trader book, there's a section on the emperor – and I think I just called him kind of like the emperor, and then just wrote that all off the top of my head, right. uh, and just 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 went with it. Because sometimes you get you, you kind of get a a groove, you get a theme in your head, and it just writes itself. You know, as you say, it's got an element of June. It's also got an element of the um, roots. Is it the Rootstaff series for or yep. from Mark and Mark? It's also got um, elements of two thousand AD. Yeah, you were a fan of 2000 AD. In fact, you were involved in a game of 2000 AD. Yeah, well, uh, it was before before I did 40K. um, I was commissioned by Games Workshop, not necessarily Citadel, but Games Workshop, to write the role-playing game for uh, Juice Dread. Yeah. So so I sat down with, I think it must have been the first 300 copies of 2000 AD. I had to go through these and then reconstruct, try to construct the world from all the descriptions in 2000 AD. When I eventually met John Wagner, who's the guy who created the Jewish trade, he explained how they all thought it was really funny that I, uh, I'd gone through and officially described what an overzoom was and a zip way. Because <laughs> you know? these are just words they just threw in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, to give, to give. And of course, the funny thing is, that's exactly what I do when I'm writing 40K, or did. You yeah. know, I just throw in words and throw in concepts and little things. Not since the dog days of the, the ninth uh, uh, rebellion of such terrors occurred. It, you know, it's that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, and, and the, the whole horse heresy was born out of one of those. You know, I need to fill out a little bit of space. Uh, I'm interested yeah. in your your point of view then, as the, as a, as a writer of this. That I, I feel like there are people who, and you you wouldn't have known, I guess, when you were first writing Rogue Trader. But there are people who know the law so deeply and so well, in the same way that some Star Trek and Star Wars fans do, that that they they take it so seriously and they go back and they compare this passage here to one that was written ten years ago and and want to yeah. say that they cancel each other out. And people can get quite grumpy about it, but that's never how you you intend it when you write it, I guess. Well, no, I, I did try quite hard when when Forty K first came out. I tried quite hard to keep tabs on everything. Yeah. Uh, but what I found was, was other people would take on the bits. And because it became successful, everyone wanted a part of it. You know, all of a sudden, um, particularly Brian himself, I mean, he was the boss, so he's entitled, started to come up with uh, stuff for it. So the, the whole thing with Tyranids, although I created the Tyranids originally, they were really reimagined by Brian Ansell, and he, he reimagined Tyranids and uh, wrote all that stuff about them. Right. 
But I don't th that the whole concept of them moving through the warp as a shadow at sub-light speed, which was his original idea, I just sat back and I thought, Brian, do you know how much of a threat something moving at sub-light speed is in a galaxy that's, you know, 30,000 light years across? Yeah. You're not that worried about it, you know. You can uh, you can quietly just ignore it. Yeah, right. Uh, so it's things like that. I don't think all the people necessarily got their head around. And it's someone who's been in, in the game much longer than I have recently wrote an article that the game of 40K started with a sense of humour that maybe it doesn't have so much now, but... Uh, but that back in the day, think well, orcs is a great example. <laughs> you know, the, even the names of things are there's obviously some tongue in cheek going on there. Um, yeah, and did you in, deliberately intend for this in this grim dark to also be to have some comedic or some light? Yeah, it's light and shade. Um, you, um, yeah, I, I always do that. Um, I, I, I never quite managed to take myself entirely seriously. Um, <laughs> There's probably more jokes in 40k than people realise because I'd, I'd make references to things that would be a little bit obscure. Nowadays, there's no such thing as anything obscure, is there? Because you can always just go on the just internet, Google it, type yeah. something in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when I created the chapter marine, the marine chapters and the various um, uh, uh, chapter masters, the, the primarchs, you know, a lot of them are quite uh, are gags on things. Uh, like uh, the Dark Angels have chapter Primark being um, Lionel Johnson, and Lionel Johnson famously wrote a poem called The Dark Angel. Right. Uh, but but how many people are into late Victorian poetry? You know, it's not, not as many as you'd think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but of course, nowadays you look it up. Yeah, well, go. yeah, but I don't know if very many people do. So that little revelation may come as quite something quite startling. Um, well, I've made I've made that one before. Well. It's actually a bit more of a joke as well because the Dark Angel is about um, uh, Lionel Johnson's own uh, kind of. It's like, it's, it's like his inner desires and repressions. It's something quite shady and, and, and has sexual uh, overtones as well. Um, and of course, the Dark Angel chapter Space Marines always have this sort of secret, secret dark side to them. Yeah. Um, in fact, Lionel Johnson died falling off a bar stool whilst pissed, if I remember right. <laughs> so, you know. I'm interested in what your favourite part of all of this is. Is there something you created that you look down on with particular pride that you really, really just go, either either a character or a chapter or a race or a, a, a part of the game? I don't know. I mean, I'm not really... Ever since I, I left Games Workshop 10 years ago, yeah, and I haven't looked at 40K since. I just couldn't bear to, to be honest. Um, and even when I was there, I stepped away from it probably, um, let me think, mid-1990s. Um, because uh, uh, really, Andy Chambers took over, and I wanted to give him space mm. to, um, to 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 be the guy in charge of 40k. So really, the thing I'm most proud of with 40k is just the fact that it's gone on to be so successful, and um, enabled so many people to earn a living doing something so nonsensical. It's uh, it's so. interesting. For me, uh, knowing that you're the guy that did this, right, uh, and, I, and it's a game I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about, but knowing you're, you're the man that created it is, is a much higher conceptual thing. And I've come into this conversation thinking, well, this is great. This is the guy that created it. But then when you actually talk about things like creating the Primarchs and naming them, naming them for me, that makes it a much more tangible, real, you created these actual models that I'm using, you know, Magnus the Red and the various others that, that I have 
in my model collection. These are your, these came from your brain. Uh, and, uh, probably many of them, anyway. Yeah, well, but other people do contribute. Sure, I can't, I can't claim everything. No, uh, but yeah. you know what I mean that that. Um, that originally I'm kind of thinking, okay, a broader concept, but you specifically sat down and wrote about things like the Emperor and the Warp and, as you say, Lionel Johnson and some of the Primarchs and and and, and those things are still such yeah. a big part of this game that we're playing now. Oh, I think, although I can't say for certain, as I say, because I don't really pay much attention anymore, but from what I have seen, I think the 40K as it is now has its roots in what I did. I read that the, the Horus Heresy was always created by you as something, again, more of a conceptual background kind of, don't go too deeply into it, but it's there as a, an origin story kind of thing. Um, but it's taken on a life of its own in terms of the novel. Some of the, the best Black Library books come out of the Horus Heresy. Uh, have you ever read any? Do you read the Black Library? Did you did you follow any no, of that stuff? I can't read it. It's too... Um... I, I've tried reading uh, some 40k fiction, and I just go, no, that's wrong. That can't be right. No, it wouldn't work. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, I, I, I just find it too. Um, it's too different from the concept of the 40k universe that was in my head. Yeah. So it's not. So I might as well be reading science fiction by someone else. You know, some set in some other universe. Uh, yeah. No. No. I, the, there are some things about. Um, uh, but they're just a bit too close. No, no, don't do it at all. I do think that, I, and I know that the when you left Games Workshop, and and everyone acknowledges that that the company went through just a, a a pretty abysmal time and went away from what they were supposed to be doing. In the the short time that I've been with it, I I honestly believe that it's come back to being much closer to what you originally were a part of. That the the rules yes. are written to as closely match the law as they can, you know, within the realms of still having to play a game that is even, and and I and I I'd like to think that they are doing that to get back to the roots of the game and bring back the people that you know they originally intended it to be for. Yeah, well, I think they've given up their policy of deliberately ignoring and uh, 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 deliberately ignoring the customers. Mm. They've actually started doing the things that I was trying to advocate for when I was there. Right. And one of the reasons why I wasn't, suddenly wasn't there is because I was advocating for those things. And I get that so, that's frustrating um, to see yeah. them doing it now <laughs> rather than... Well, it, it, it's because um, Tom Kirby left. Tom Kirby was the owner of Gates Workshop, the guy who floated it, uh, my boss. But he, he, he had some very fixed ideas about... Um, uh, about what the business was, including that no one played games. Uh, he, he, was, he had this idea that nobody played games, only collected the models. Um, it's an interesting uh, position for a person running games workshop. I uh, want to come back to something you yeah. said earlier on about when I asked you about what you're most proud of. I kind of imagined that you might say some of the characters or the lore, but you talked about just how, how well the game is doing, how successful it has become, and and you created it, and it is... And and just touching on the the conversation we're having now about uh, you know people getting together and sharing it in this common thing that they have and and opening doors for communication and giving people a chance to you know uh, be more social and and uh, all of that must be a tremendous source of pride as well. Get, creating that avenue for people and and the fact that it has become so popular. Well, yeah, that's, that is true. Um, of course, it, it's true of all gaming, not just Games Workshop and 
Uh, yeah, it's true. And, and these days, board gaming has become popular, and people play card games as well. Whereas when we were kids, when I was kids, uh, yeah, we did play card games, but you know, there would be whist and bridge and you know, this sort of thing. There, there wasn't that sort of <laughs> modern card gaming play. Right, Canasta um, and Five Hundred were very popular. Yeah, uh, yes, uh, Black Mariah. We played a lot of. Oh, I got into a, I got into a fight at school over game Black Mariah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I got very. I got into serious trouble. <laughs> Were you that kind of kid yeah. uh, at school? No, no. I did. Well, the the other chap hit me with a bicycle pump. I had no option but to punch him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, fair enough. I mean, you know, I don't know what a chap from England's supposed to do if he gets a hit in the head with a bicycle pump. Uh, what what other course of action do you have? You can't roll a six and figure I'll out the way. Step back and go. I say so. I say so. <laughs> Slap him with a glove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, uh, sorry, one more question I want to ask before you disappear, and that um, I think this will be interesting to people who are playing 40K, is that I know it, we all know it, we who play it, it's a game where we have uh, D6. We, we roll as many D6 dice as we need to for each part of the game. But, it, yeah. but you, when you first came into it, th there were not a lot of other games around which were using a standard six-sided dice. There was Dungeons and Dragons and all of these games they were using D10s and 20s and whatever else, right? Yes, and that was another... When I wrote Warhammer, that was one of Brian... One, Brian Ansell commissioned Warhammer, and he's, he stands one of the authors, but really he commissioned it, and what he did was he said, it must work in certain ways, and me and Richard Halliwell kind of took all that on board. So the brief was it had to use D6s, yeah. because every kid had D6s in his Monopoly set at home. Right. Whereas these funny foreign dice coming in from the United States of America and were quite expensive. They were just hard to get. Um, so when Warhammer came out, and, and I say it was, it's Brian's genius that he said it, um, and it, and it was all D6 based, all the existing wargamers, the really dedicated wargamers who've been playing some of these very complicated games with uh, D100s and charts and tables and all sorts of things, they, they just thought we were incompetent. <laughs> I, right. I got a letter. I got a letter from a chap explaining rather, 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 rather kindly, explaining that people just don't play war games like that anymore. Not since the great days of the 1960s and John <laughs> Donald Featherston and you know, the grandfathers of war gaming. People don't play games like this anymore. But if he liked, he would he would he would take it upon himself to rewrite our game for us. Oh, how very generous! So it was, so it was more modern. We had to write back and go, well, that's very kind of you to say that, but it would be quite like it like this, really. That's right. It may be hard to understand, but we've done it on purpose. Yes, it was deliberate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I it feel like we could, I could, I could, you probably don't have time, but I could talk for hours. I just, it's a fascinating story, the way it all came to be, how much of it was commissioned, how much of it was uh, dictated by the, the times and, uh, the fact that it has gone on to be so successful. The one thing I want to finish with, though, is um, what you're doing now, because you're still heavily involved in creating games, albeit slightly different ones for other people. Uh, well, sort of. And I, uh, I work with uh, Warlord Games, which is myself and John Stallard and uh, Paul Sawyer, who used to be uh, uh, the White Dwarf editor years, years back. And uh, we produce mostly historical war games. I've, I've done a couple of, uh, I've done a fantasy set of rules, and I've done a, uh, a science fiction set of rules. But to be honest, you know, you without the the great machine of Games Workshop behind it, you really struggle. Yeah. <laughs> and fiction really doesn't sell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, 
Brian was right. <laughs> Brian was right. It's. It, do you think it was a, a product of its time that you just you hit that wave at exactly the right time with with? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right time. For, uh, 2000 AD had seeded a lot of that yeah. and uh, it provided a lot of the inspiration and enthusiasm. Um, and it, I think Aliens had just come out. It was, hadn't been out for very long. That's sort of dystopic science fiction. Uh, and the idea of having good guys who were very dark and sinister was very... Uh, it really appalled a, a lot of Americans in particular. Yeah. But it it chimed with that 2000 AD Judge Dredd. I remember reading Judge Dredd, 2000 AD, uh, Commando comics when I was when I was a boy growing up. Yeah. These, these yeah. are the things that we read, and, and Roy of the Rovers, weirdly. <laughs> and listen, um, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation, and uh, and if I may, be, may say, an honour to, to catch up with you. So I, I really appreciate you being available for the show. And all the You're best very for, welcome, for, Steve. For, for all the rest of it. I hope COVID winds up soon and you're able to get out and play again. Yeah, me too, Steve. It's uh, It's been uh, a little bit uh, a bit strange, but I have painted lots of toy soldiers, so good. that can't be too bad. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm somebody is. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's All doing right, it. Thanks, mate. Take care. All the best. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye now. Bye now. My sincere thanks to Rick Priestley. The link to Warlord Games is in our show notes. Make sure you join the Frontline Community Group on Facebook. How many in the perfect-sized 40K team? They'd love your thoughts. And while you're on Facebook, go like the 40K Game Changers page and, if you can, leave a review of the show. That'd be super helpful. That link is also in our show notes. Next week, WTC head judge Neil Kerr explains how a Scotsman ended up coaching rugby in Sweden and what that has to do with the game of 40K. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Joel, and this has been 40K Game Changers.